Okay. So John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. As we continue into here, one of the things that we will start to see over and over and over again is the inevitability of things to come to pass. As we are very much at the, at the table where the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, we know that the betrayal of Simon uh, Iscariot, uh, or of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, was about to happen. The inevitability of things to come to pass becomes one of these sub-themes of John. He introduces that to us in a multiplicity of ways. One, the scriptures must be fulfilled. Could Jesus have saved Judas Iscariot? Think before you answer that question. What was Jesus' opinion about that? Because he states it on multiple occasions, starting in John 6 all the way through John 17. Why was he not saving Judas Iscariot? Because the scriptures must be fulfilled. Let me ask you another question. Can God unsave you? I, I want to hear it loud and joyful. Can God unsave you? No. There is an inevitability to the salvation that God has started. It is a work he will finish. Why? Because he will remain consistent with his promises. What did he promise about Judas Iscariot? In the scriptures, the one who dips his bread in the, in the dish with me will betray me. Could God have turned back on that promise and that future foretelling? No. Which means the inevitability of what God had intended will certainly come to pass. What about, let's put it this way, what about that same night, Peter, in all of his fervor, and desire to serve Christ and to follow him anywhere, says even if everyone else betrays you, after Christ had warned that all the disciples would leave him, he says even if everyone else abandons you, even if all these losers leave you behind, I will not. And what did Jesus tell him about? You're going to do it three times before the sun comes up. Let me ask you a question. Could Peter have taken that warning to heart? And have not denied Christ? No. John is showing us the inevitability of these things. Could Pilate have changed his mind and not crucified Jesus or handed him over to the Jews for the decision? No. Because God's hand and plan had predestined these things to take place. If you doubt that, you can go read the apostles' opinion about it in their prayer in Acts chapter 4, where they state it clearly that every single one of these things worked out an inevitability regarding the salvation of mankind, and nobody can turn back the plan of God. And John, having been there for Acts 4, having been there for the Council of Jerusalem, now well advanced in years, most likely in his 80s at this point, is writing to the whole church and saying, this is the inevitable salvation that God intended and no one can turn back his hand. That's the God we serve. Many are those who think that because their will has chosen something else that God can somehow forget to save them. I have warned somebody who knew themselves to be a Christian but wanted to go off into the world. 
I said, you're, you're going to learn something about God's faithfulness. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes you're going to find how far a leash will go and it will snap you right back and it's going to hurt. But if you think that you can follow the Lord, be saved by him, and he will fail to present you faultless before the throne of grace, you don't know the God that I serve. He will pursue you to the ends of this earth. You are his child. He will find you and he will bring you into submission to these things. And it all came to pass. Sometimes maturity is won through being warned. Sometimes it is earned through ignoring it and experiencing the downside yourself. But God will see to it. That is the emphasis of the God who provides. He will see to it. He will provide for us exactly what is necessary to present us faultless before his throne of grace. And here, the inevitability of the salvation of Christ, the inevitability of the betrayal of Judas, the inevitability of the abandonment of him from all of his disciples, and including the most fervent of all, Peter, who even hearing that he would deny Christ within 12 hours, three times, there was an inevitability to our failures, and there is an inevitability to God's successes. And there's no way around it. And John is putting us face to face with that so that our confidence may not rest on us, but on him who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light. I, for one, am very glad that it was not up to this dark heart to appreciate the light of Christ. Because I know what this darkness loves. It loves more darkness. I know what I would be if left to my own devices, and it wouldn't be who you see standing in front of you. And I know who stands in front of you, and I'm not impressed with him. In the middle of all of this, Jesus is sitting at this table, and John reminds us that he is troubled knowing exactly what will come to pass, having known this for years. He walked side by side with Judas Iscariot, gave him the ability to cast out demons and to work healings. Judas Iscariot had worked miracles. Have you ever realized that? Didn't just see him, did him. All the while, Jesus knowing that the scriptures are inevitable. They will be fulfilled. And I want you to see this here in this passage. I'd ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read it. John chapter 13, verses 21 to 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him, asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. 
So that disciple, leading back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what is needed for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Father, we're grateful for this passage. It is hard to read of such things. But it is endemic on us to appreciate them and to love them. We thank you for inspiring these words. We pray that you illumine them to our hearts and to our minds even this day. That we may not merely understand them, but love them as you love them. We pray that we desire that for each other as well. That the fellowship of your saints this morning lead to a higher appreciation and glory in Christ. And no more confidence in the flesh. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Sometimes the argument for Stoicism overtakes the church. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Stoicism had this value placed on thinking your way out of an emotional state. To think yourself above uh, the circumstances of life, the way that you will Uh, live a happy life is to see things from the right perspective, uh, to get everything all lined up exactly right, and to ensure that your mind is able to keep your heart and your emotions in check. Uh, But the Gospel of John will not allow us to dip into Stoicism. In fact, he will intentionally show us that Jesus himself didn't do that, and yet when he comes to the tomb of Lazarus, whom he knew he was about to raise from the dead, what was Jesus' response? To weep. His friend was dead. It was right for him to mourn death. What do we see him here coming, instituting the first Lord's Supper? And what's going on in his mind? What is John introducing these things to us? He's saying Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Was Jesus just having a lack of faith? Far be it from us to even ask that question, honestly. No. Jesus was rightly responding to the situation that one who had been close to them will now, in the next few minutes, abandon the way. That is a call for grave concern. I have seen it happen time and time again, and it causes sadness in me every time. I know many of you have seen that happen time and time again, and it is hard to watch. It is hard to watch one who has access to all the knowledge of the gospel, all the clarity of the teachings of Christ, the natures of salvation, the reality of the fear of the Lord, the way of wisdom, and then instead choose a way of folly, And to pursue their own lusts and desires rather than the way of the Lord. Here, the most deceitful of all desires 
a pursuit of riches, has overtaken one of the closest disciples to Jesus, Judas Iscariot. You may look at that and say, what do you mean one of the closest disciples? That doesn't make any sense. It's Peter, James, and John that are the closest. Yes, but it is Judas Iscariot who is sitting next to Christ at the Lord's Supper. John was sitting next to Christ on his left side. Judas was sitting next to him on his right. And as John leans back, because they are reclining at the table, one after another like this, as John leans back to ask Jesus who it is, Jesus tells only John. Nobody else really understands what's going on. And he looks up. Now Jesus looks up at Judas Iscariot and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. Jesus even dipped the bread into the wine for him. What is Jesus' response to all of this but to be troubled in his heart? It will be not the last time that he is troubled that evening. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and once again there sweats drops of blood in great concern for what he is about to endure the weight of what he is about to take upon himself. If you listen to some people and the way they try to bring Stoicism into Christianity, they'll say, that's just a lack of faith because he's scared or he's intimidated. He should really just think higher things and think above those things, but far be it from us to think those things because the reality is that sin and death is a weight all of its own and it is a power that is overwhelming to us and it should break our heart. Here we see the God of the universe reacting to sin and to death and to betrayal in a very, very familiar way. He looks out at a group of men that have been following him for upwards of four years and says... One of you will betray me. Let me ask you a question. There is a lot of wisdom in him saying that to a group of them. Because they all asked the right question afterwards. Is it They all knew their weakness. So should we. These are the first apostles. They were to be sent into the world to preach the gospel to everyone in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And yet they understood that there was a certain reality of their message that they were to bring. And yet they were thoroughly dependent on Jesus to keep them on the straight and narrow. And here Jesus is talking about leaving. Going to a place they cannot go. He's talking about one of them will betray him. And the chances aren't really high. It's one in 12. Imagine being one of them. I would be sitting there asking the exact same question. I know my nature. I know my sin well enough to know that it could be me. Because if it was up to me, it would be me. You understand that? This is why all of them are familiar with their sin and they all ask this question, is it I, is it I? And then Peter finds just in desperation, John, ask him who it is. 
So we hate not knowing who it's going to be because it could be me. We all know that if salvation and fealty and dedication to Christ was left solely up to us and our devices, how many of us would betray him? Maybe this month, maybe this week, this year. This is why it is absolutely essential for the Christian's hope to rest on the preserving power of God to continue to keep us saved. It is not on you to maintain salvation. You can't do that. I can't do that. Peter knows he can't do that. John knows he can't do that. And so do all the rest of the disciples sitting around the table begging from Christ the name of the person who's going to betray him so at least they can be reserved that it's not them then. There is one reason and one reason alone that Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ. It's because he was not saved by him. Think about that for a second. We like to imagine that it was on the basis of Judas Iscariot having salvation and then turning his back on it. It is not the case. Nowhere in scripture are we given such a teaching. In fact, we're given that Judas Iscariot was given the best shot. If any of us would have ever worked our way up salvation on our own merit, Judas Iscariot would have had it. He was doing miracles. Remember the warnings in the Sermon on the Mount? The false teachers who will come to you, didn't we do this? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says to them, what? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I what? I never knew you. Is that an amber alert or are we about to experience a tornado? Okay. Okay, good. Snow squall is fine. If a tornado comes, you let me know, all right? We don't have a basement, but we have a central room that I'm going to run to. That's right. Fire and brimstone's raining down from heaven. Watch out. Boy, if something can derail a thought, that's going to do it. I'm going to need a second. Hang on. If anything is going to break our fellowship with the Lord, we know it's going to be us. And if anyone is going to establish the inevitability of our salvation, we know it's not going to be us because we know the tendency towards betrayal. We know the tendency towards sin. And so all of us should have that same concern until we learn that actually our salvation depends on Christ only. We should all have that same concern. Is it I who's going to betray you? Is it I who's going to not stay faithful and endure to the end to be saved? Is it I who I'm going to follow for a while and then the cares and the deceitfulness of riches and things distract me from these things? Am I going to be the one that the seed fell among the soil with the thorns that grew up and choked it out because of the cares and pleasures of this world? Am I going to be the one who got excited about following Christ for a time and then the rocky soil that is my heart put to death what the seed germinated before any fruit could come? Or is there good soil because God has given me a new heart? 
Salvation does not rest on you or on me. Salvation is a gift of God. And so at the end of all of these things, there's only one real reason why Judas Iscariot did what all of us outside of Christ would do. Choose sin over God. So my question, why? Why? In the short answer, because the scriptures must be fulfilled. One of the closest to him must betray him. In the long answer, because of the deceitfulness of riches. It takes in anyone whom the Lord has not called, because at the end of it all, Riches promise to us comfort and success with very little effort. Riches promise to us solidity and calmness. The apostles warn us in one of the epistles of the reality that even teachers and pastors have left the way of the gospel in the pursuit of riches because of how deceitful riches can be. The book of Jude warns us that there is the way of Balaam, who for the pursuit of riches desired to curse the people of God, and yet God would not allow such a thing. He says there have been false teachers arising, just as there once were false prophets, who look at these things as a way to self-aggrandize. And here, Judas Iscariot is choosing the same thing. He would rather money than Christ. Outside of salvation, can you not honestly see yourself doing that? I can. Think of the things that you have legitimized, the sins that you have justified in your mind. Things maybe that nobody else has known about, things you got away with, which I will simply explain to you, nobody ever gets away with anything. John ceases to even mention his own name Throughout his gospel, he says here in verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, that is John speaking of himself, by the way, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him, asked Jesus of whom it was he was speaking. And so that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? We want to know. We want to get to the bottom of that so that we understand it's not us. And here's, here's the amazing part about this. They're not concerned that somebody will betray Jesus. They're just concerned it might be them. Nobody is asking how could such a thing be? How could one of us who have who have traveled with you, who have done miracles, who have cast out demons? How is it one of us who are your closest people throughout the entire world? How is it one of us could betray him? Nobody's asking that question. The question they're asking is, is it me? It shouldn't actually surprise us that nobody is asking that. 
Because at the end of it, they understand it could be any one of them. And at the other side of it, their concern is for themselves. It is not for Christ, which reveals something very deep in our hearts. Because even if we don't find ourselves in the seat of Judas Iscariot, we can certainly find ourselves in the seat of the other 11 who are only concerned for their self-preservation. Now imagine being in the seat of Jesus for just a moment. As much as we possibly could. He just told all of his friends that one of them is going to betray him because it was foretold from the foundation of the world. And none of them asked how he was handling that information. None of them asked betrayed to who? How can we defend you? Nobody asked anything about his well-being. No one asked anything about this. In fact, they were all just saying, I hope it's not me, hope it's not me, hope it's not me. So Jesus meets them where they're at because he's always doing this. Verse 26. Jesus answered. He just answered back to John. John asks him who it is. John gets an answer. It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So he dips the morsel, and he gave it to Judas Iscariot. You know, there's only two people that would have been close enough to Jesus to hear that answer. John, who's writing this, and Judas, who had already done it. He had already made the arrangements to go out and to betray him. And so he receives the bread from him. This is a fascinating thing because if you read through it quickly, you probably miss this. It wasn't until Judas had heard that the person who was to betray him would receive the morsel from Jesus' hand that Judas reached out knowing that, took the morsel from Jesus' hand, knowing that only he and Jesus and John knew what that meant. And it was at that moment that Judas willingly took the inevitable road. Look how John describes it. After he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus, now not speaking to Judas, speaks to Satan. What you are going to do, do quickly. This is... A tremendous thing because we usually never get pieces of the spiritual realm pulled back for us to see what in the world's going on. And it is always confusing to us because we don't have that perspective. Look at the rest of the disciples. They're just going like, what? wait, does he have to go to the bank? And John is writing to us saying, this little exchange happened. And I can tell you, that's the moment Satan entered into him. And then Jesus speaks to Satan, who from everything that we have seen so far, he hasn't spoken to him since the temptation back three and a half years ago. He tells him what he is going to do, do quickly. Is it surprising to Jesus that Satan enters Judas Iscariot? Nope. Not surprising to him. Is it surprising to Judas? It's irrelevant. Is it surprising to John? Yes. All of a sudden... For the first time, one of the disciples realizes the significance of the night that they are on. And John is the first to see it. He looks around and goes, something's different about tonight. Not only is someone going to betray him, 
Satan just entered one of the disciples and he is off and gone. And everyone over here is arguing about, the other ten disciples are arguing about, oh, this can't be me, it can't be me, I can't do this, I would, maybe it is me, I don't know. They're all trying to figure this out. And John and Judas and Jesus are seeing this little interchange and John is showing it to us and describing us I would imagine the fear that settled on him at that moment. Because the way he writes about this is different than we see in the other gospel narratives. And John points out that no one at the table knew what was going on. John had asked Jesus, who is it? He says, see this piece of bread? It's who I'm going to give it to. Dips it, give it to Judas. The three of them are sitting right there next to each other. And John is able to see what in the world is going on, what in the supernatural world is going on. And John's like, everyone else was confused. They had no idea what was going on. Some thought that it was the money bag thing. Some thought it was all this. Maybe buy what we need for the feast or give some money to the poor. They, they had no idea what was going on. I knew what was going on. And all of a sudden, I have this feeling of dread knowing that it is inevitable what's about to happen. That if he has been betrayed, then we have something massive in our future that we have to wrestle with. Something overwhelming. What could it possibly be? And so Judas, verse 30, after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Now, very rarely will you get time of day notations from John. When you do, it's always important. The woman at the well came at high noon. That tells us something about who she is and who she doesn't want to be around. Anytime that you see Jesus doing something at a specific time of day, it is always connected to that. The concept of the fact that it is now night, and yet we have chapters and chapters before the sun rises. John is actually using, now it was night before the meal too. This wasn't a very long meal. He is using this as a metaphor, if you ask me, to establish that now we are in the thick of it. Darkness is overtaken and it's also night. It is something heavy. It is something intense that is happening. It seems to be that because there is no other indication of time of day that is just carelessly tossed about in John. He's always connecting it to the narrative that's going on. It always has something to do with it. And so just finishing out and saying that it was night. And Jesus' response to all that has just happened is that now it is time for the Son of Man to be glorified and God to be glorified in him. The inevitability of salvation should be high in your minds. Satan tried everything in his power. And because of the impenetrable promises of scripture, he only got one of his 12 disciples. And only because the scriptures had said it. Not because Satan had intended this from years back and had figured out a way to slip into the closest circles around Jesus. No, it is because of the scriptures. It is because scripture will not be broken. And how many other ways can Jesus say this? The scripture must be fulfilled. It promised this, it came to pass. What is your implications regarding Satan here? Is he off doing all this stuff and sometimes he will win and sometimes God will win? Or is it that we are learning that 
try as he may, he will only go exactly where God tells him to go. Could Satan have taken Peter? No, Jesus talks about this. Satan has desired to sift your soul like wheat, but I've prayed for you. That may well be extrapolated out to the rest of the ten disciples, but not Judas Iscariot, because the scripture must be fulfilled, and the scripture has foretold that there would be one who would be closest to him that would betray him, and so Jesus didn't pray for him. And Satan sifted his soul like flour. And if you think any of us was up to the challenge of maintaining fealty to Christ without him maintaining fealty to us, you are as mistaken as Judas. When it says we place our faith in Christ, it is not us saving ourselves because Jesus finally convinced us. It is Christ will save me. There is nothing I can do to improve my standing. Christ will save me. Christ will preserve me. Christ will glorify me. Come what may, come all the forces of hell, come Satan himself, Christ has prayed for me. Come enemy, come king, come Satan, come demon. My Savior will present me faultless before his throne. My friends, that is not a cocky perspective. That is faith in Christ. He will do this. Not because I have proven myself, because none of us can. Not because I have lived up to the calling. No, because none of us can. But because he is gracious and merciful to those who humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. And so we humble ourselves and become obedient to the point of death. And we will leave the exaltation up to the Father who has called us from darkness into his marvelous light and will not lose a single sheep. Here's the thing that John has been working towards. The good shepherd doesn't lose sheep. The good shepherd protects his sheep. The good shepherd chases away the wolves. The good shepherd, if one sheep does try to get lost, will leave the 99 and go find that sheep somewhere and bring him back into the fold. Not a one of you that the Father gives to me, he says in John chapter 6, I will ever lose. John chapter 6 has two things about the Father. The work of the Father and the will of the Father. The will of the Father, Jesus does. This is the will of him who sent me, he says, that I lose none of which he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. The work of the Father, that falls to us, believe on the one whom he has sent. That's it. It's John 6. The whole teaching of everything. Bread is not sufficient. Sustenance is not enough. You must trust Christ Because at the center of who we are, we will trust ourselves, we will trust what is familiar, we will trust what is comfortable, we will trust what is easy. But in Christ, we are to trust what shows us who we are. That if left to our own devices, we know we are betrayers. We know we would sin. We know we would seek to someone else. We know we would seek 
riches. We know we would seek fame, glory, whatever is our current device or desire. If left to ourselves. Thank God we are not left to ourselves. God does no violence to our will, but he certainly comes and gives us a new heart that desires the things of the Lord. And for that, I am eternally grateful that he has worked in all of us a desire to follow him no matter what it costs, no matter where it will take us, so that we would see the throne of God high and lifted up in our minds here as we practice for that choir above. Do not allow the deceitfulness of the things of this world to distract you from the promises that are inevitable in Christ. For he will present his people faultless before the throne of grace. And there is nothing that hell or this earth can do about it. That is the God we serve. And that is the God who interacts with sin and betrayal, with sorrow, who interacts with death, with weeping. He does not teach us to rise above our circumstances and to not react to them in such ways. No, instead, he shows us the way that wisdom interacts with the world. It loves life, and it eschews death. But if we must pass through suffering and death, we know the promises of Christ, don't we? The one who believes on me will live. Even if he dies, he will live. And the one who relies on himself will die even though he lives. Such are the inevitable promises of God and his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed very grateful that our hearts and our minds are not settled by our intentions, but that our hearts and minds are settled by your promises. We pray that we would find them sufficient, that we would look for answers nowhere else but that we would desire to see Christ and him crucified, high and lifted up, exalted, given a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your own personal glory. For this we give you our thanks. Father, we are not fools who imagine that this week we will somehow persevere on our own strength and steam. We pray that you keep our feet from evil, for we know how quickly we would like to step in it. We pray that you keep our hands to the work of the Lord, for we know how quickly we can be distracted by our own selves. We pray, Father, that you find us all in the callings to which you have called us. Whatever responsibilities you have given us, whatever positions you have given us, that we would pursue them as we ought. As mature Christians, we pray you let us think. As wise people, we pray you let us interact with your world. We pray this all in your Son's name, who is himself wisdom and grace.
Amen.